So welcome to Sibsy Journal's podcast on heat pumps. In the next hour or so, we'll be looking at the policy drivers behind the move towards heat pumps and the electrification of heat. And we'll be hearing from three leading consultants about the opportunities and challenges of designing heat pump systems, particularly in commercial developments. We'll also hear from manufacturer Mitsubishi Electric, which manufactures a, a large range of heat pumps, both for domestic and commercial. And Tim Dwyer is here, UCL visiting professor and the journal's technical editor. Tim has written nearly 200 CBDs for the journal, many of which have been on heat pumps. Um, so he'll be able to offer some extra technical insight and we'll, we'll be asking questions around the technology. I'd like to first of all introduce the guests we have today. We have Bean Beanlad, who's the Director of Growth and External Affairs at the Heat Pump Federation. Cherry Chan, Mechanical Engineer at Elementor Consulting. James Chaplin, Senior Product Manager at Mitsubishi Electric. Tim Dwyer, Visiting Professor at UCL. And as I said, also the Sibsi Journal Technical Editor. Mark Poulter, Project Director at Chapman BDSP. And Bill Watts, Senior Partner at Max Fordham. And I thought, first of all, it would be good to set policy context for drive towards heat pumps and, and their widespread adoption. And we're obviously reading a lot about it at the moment, and it'd be great to hear from Bean. So Bean, how is the heat pump market responding to this growth in demand? Alex, thank you very much indeed. And uh, a, a pleasure to be joining you all on this uh, this Sibsi podcast. I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, heat pump technology has been the, the poor relation in terms of uh, heating strategies in the UK for what feels like a lifetime, to be honest. Um, those of us that have been in the industry for a, uh, for a number of years feel that we've been pushing water uphill for some considerable time. But I'm delighted to say that uh, we've got at last the signs of political change, which we've just not had for the last uh, 15 years or so. Um, the heat pump industry in the UK has suffered predominantly because of very low cost gas availability um, for the uh, well, for the last 50 years um, and this has uh, held back electrification of heat but things have taken a significant turn for the better under the renewable heat incentive uh, whilst the opening tariffs were not particularly attractive and didn't make heat pump technologies attractive around 2017-18 we saw some significant changes uh, and that really started to accelerate the uh, attractiveness of, of heat pumps that were being installed underneath both the domestic and the non-domestic RHI. And then much more latterly, of course, we started to get some political endorsement at last. So this uh, in, initially came with um, the Prime Minister and Chancellor visiting Octopus Energy's headquarters and seeing live printouts from an air source heat pump displacing natural gas in Oxford and doing so successfully. Boris then went on and actually mentioned ground source heat pumps by name at the Tory party conference last year, which was uh, quite extraordinary. And that culminated then in the 10-point plan just before Christmas and the announcement that government was anticipating 600,000 heat pumps per annum by 2028. That sort of political endorsement we have just not had previously. So that has made an extraordinary change. And whilst that 600,000 refers predominantly to domestic units, I think it's reasonably clear that uh, some of that total will be coming through on heat networks with uh, domestic buildings hanging off the end. And those architectures for heat networks are many and varied, and you'll probably hear about some of them later on this morning. Uh, and many of those, of course, will include um, large centralised plant 
And we're also now starting to see some sort of significant turnaround in terms of government expectations with commercial EPUB applications. Uh, and I think here we really are only just scratching the surface because I don't think that our industry has been very good at setting out our stall for uh, commercial and, and industrial users of heat pumps. Consequently, the market doesn't really know what we can do. And government is sitting in the middle, you know, wondering what's going on. So we are beginning to really ramp up our engagement with the industrial um, energy team at Bayes, as well as working on uh, space heating for domestic consumers. And the big, um, the big elephant in the room, of course, for us is flexibility. If we can start to unlock flexibility value, that will make a massive contribution. The ability for heat pumps to load shift, make use of low cost electricity, you know, low carbon, low cost electricity is enormous in the future. So I think that um, we're set fair. We've got great political endorsement, but we're still short on policy. So our activities now in the HPF are driven by wanting to extend our grand coalition in support of electrification so that we can influence government and particularly treasury so we get policies that will enable us to deliver on what is currently still political aspiration. Great, thanks very much, Ben. I wouldn't, I'd like to turn to the consultants now, um, and I'll start with Mark. And I understand, Mark, that you have been working on commercial projects involving heat pumps. Is that right? And yeah, what, what, stage, what stage are you at, and what, what are you advising your your clients at the moment? So they're, they're, with the uh, new London plan that's come into force and elements like that, it's effectively the, the planning is uh, forcing developments down that route. A lot of uh, the conversations that I've had personally have been in the sort of the new new developments. So you're talking planning applications that are going through now or in the near future. We haven't really seen anything in terms of retrofit yet or sort of that side of the industry. Um, it, it is purely, again, just my experience at the minute. It's, it's, it's probably mixed use resi led. So there's elements of commercial mixed in um, and that's there's quite a lot of benefits for that because you get the, the load sharing. It's anything from the 400, 500 sort of range with maybe sort of three or four towers around a podium deck. Great. And, I, and before, before I come back to you asking about challenges of heat pump design, I'll just ask Cherry the same question, actually. What projects have uh, Elementor Consultant been uh, working on? We've been working on the new Marlborough Lane Hotel in London. The HVAC system and the hot water generations are all done via electric with zero combustions. Um, so the systems was two or four pipe air source heat pump producing heating and cooling simultaneously with two water source heat pump to upgrade the low temperature heat from the air source heat pump to serve the hot water demand in the hotel. So the systems was kind of agreed four or five years ago and it was great to have the client bought into these kind of system when it wasn't that common before. But we are definitely seeing um, this kind of system become more common for more new build projects um, from our side. Great. And uh, um, Bill, I'll, I'll ask you the, the same question. I know, I know you've got an interesting project up in Oxford at the moment. Mm. Well, that's the one I'm personally involved in, which is uh, the refurbishment of Wolfson College, which is a 60s modernist building with big windows, big concrete. and that is, it got a Salix grant to fund the uh, the fabric upgrade and we're putting in a carbon dioxide air source heat pump into that and we're dealing with the challenges associated with it. But for the practice in general, we're seeing a lot of heat pumps coming through. 
but let's let's not forget the electricity supply because <laughs> getting that is not trivial and, and you might forget about it <laughs> until it's kind of late it, so at Wolfson we're, we're changing the transformer from a, a 400 kva to a 1.2 mva transformer and we we specified that but we didn't specify where the transformer was and actually you really need the transformer right next to the heat pump as and get the hv in as close as possible well that's not always possible but it's something that we should really be thinking about <laughs> it, it isn't it's, it's not an m e thing it was not a mechanical thing as an electrical mm -hmm. and the other is the the temperatures and the fact that you haven't got bunts you'll get out of jail card for with a, with a gas boiler is you just you know you massively oversized it and nobody really cared we just cannot do that <laughs> with a heat pump no, you cannot do that so you've got to be accurate with your heat losses and you know the building's got to be absolutely right and the building industry is not good at that <laughs> it really isn't good at producing buildings which have a heat loss which is what it says on the tin so we're going to be the meat in the sandwich here uh where we've put uh, the heat pump in which is just the right size and if that building fabric isn't working as it uh, uh, you know as everybody's hoping it will then everyone will turn to us and say what the hell you know what you <laughs> why isn't the heating working and it's because the building isn't working so these are all many things to pull together so it's a complete re-education of how we design the heating systems and then the CO2, which is another thing which we perhaps come on to, it, 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 rather than a phase change heating system where you're trying to keep the, the temperature band tight, with CO2, it's completely opposite. And you're trying to keep the temperature bands big, um, you know, get a very a, a, a low return to temperature. Anyway, th those are the challenges that we're, we're dealing with. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we'll come back, we'll come back to CO2 later. Um, Mark, does that mean that the engineers have got, got more more power now then i i totally agree with everything bill said there's as a, internally within our our sort of industry there's elements that uh, we need to bring up to speed and scratch our own learning but the biggest challenge that's been for me is it's the wider team as well so we've got to take them on on the same journey not necessarily the same technical detail but i mean i've spent a lot of time you, you're talking to clients it, trying to educate them the benefits they ask sort of questions is it cheaper no why why are we doing this but even uh sort of the architectural and the space planning side of things is totally different you you can't hide these things away in a basement sometimes when we're involved like stage two it's already too late because they, they've made decisions on the massing of the building the roof plant areas they want these nice sort of external amenities and terrace areas possibly even a roof roof restaurant and then we're, we're immediately the the bad guys turning around and saying oh hang on a minute we need these uh, air source heat pumps sitting on the roof we can go in there and say that and we have to because if that's what's required but it would be nice if we could look outside our industry a little bit and bring the other stakeholders along because we're doing it for the right reasons we're just not always very good at explaining why and then and obviously you've got the technical side of and you're talking about about the clients and the architects uh yeah and i mean it even goes through to structural engineers you know, i mean these typically they're heavy bits of kit you need to know where they're going they possibly need to uprate the roof structure it feeds into every aspect of the built environment 
even the noise even from them i i mean it's just when you start thinking the the shift change from a boiler hidden in a basement or chp engine whatever hidden in the basement and more traditional people's view of their their heating systems because typically it's what's in their house their home versus what we're looking to achieve there's there's elements that people haven't comprehended yet and then it's a it's part of our job is to take them on that journey and like i say that's where i've been spending most of my time in the last few months is having those sorts of conversations and are you are you getting some traction from from the rest of the industry and mixed i think it's fair to say <laughs> fundamentally it has to change because when you when you've got the planning targets and everything that's being driven by the uh, the regulation side of things um there's not very many alternatives which bean will be uh, glad to hear i'm sure um <laughs> And it's just a case of how quickly people can uh, wake up to it. Because there, there's, like anything, there's good ways of doing it and there's bad ways of doing it. Um, there's right ways and wrong ways. But just because something has to be outside doesn't mean that you can't still deliver really top quality developments. I can't just pick you up on that. You say the clients are not always happy to, to hear what you have to tell them they can't walk away though as you said there's, there aren't that many options so are you having to compromise or so everything we do is an element of compromise i mean there's limits to what you can compromise because if the systems don't work then uh, then it's uh, a problem for everybody it, it's hard and this is why a lot of time needs to be spent doing the things for the right reasons mm. it's hard because uh, outsides looking in to our industry they think that you can pretty much do anything the way I describe it is our bits are effectively the equivalents of uh, science. Like the, it, it happens, it has to have this, it needs this amount of air. It's these, these are fixed requirements. There's different ways you can get, say for example, the airflow, you can maybe route it differently, then you can talk about things like that. But fundamentally, you need these things. So yes, there's always an element of compromise. From our perspective or the designer's perspective, you can't compromise to the extent that the system doesn't work because there's no point having a building that people can't occupy or don't enjoy. And it, it, it's just a case of how we present that argument. And then it comes down to, you, you say, state your reasons, you work with the team, you you understand what their drivers are and where where you can achieve what's necessary. Uh, Bean, Bean, I think he wants to come in at that point. Yeah, I was just going to um, to just pick up on, on on some of the points that have been been made, and particularly the the situation in London, which of course has been driven by the GLA adopting two three three grams of CO two per kilowatt hour as the figure to be used in planning applications for determining carbon content, uh, and that really did change things up in London. And I, I, I suspect that you know, there were. Well, that the, the colleagues on the call here will know that there are a number of buildings that were originally aimed at CHP, new developments with CHP, and they had to be turned on their head uh, and switched to something else in order to get through planning. But it would be really good if we started to get some very, very clear statements from, from, from politicians as to where we are heading. And at the moment, there's a lot of fence sitting. Um, and uh, I completely understand that we need to uh, keep our options open with respect to hydrogen. Uh, but best will in the world, hydrogen's 10 years away, and we've no idea what it's going to cost or whether it's going to be genuinely green. And we cannot afford to waste this decade. So we need politicians to make some very clear statements, which we then in our industry 
can build on and start to bring architects, clients, because they say, you're quite right, why are we doing it? Is it cheaper? No, it isn't. But we're doing it for you know, all sorts of reasons. And, and, and in the urban environment, the air quality issue, of course, is equally important. You listen to what the GLHA has to say about air quality. Uh, most people don't recognize that 25% of urban air quality problems is caused by burning gas, not by vehicles. I just want to pick up on, on the noise um, issue. Um, I'll bring James in at this point. How much of an issue is it with, with your customers? And how, how can you mitigate noise? So, you know, with any noise generating equipment that's located externally, there's, there's always going to be a need to consider the impact of, of that to the local environment. Noise generated by heat pump plant is, is typically made up of air movement by fan deck uh, and compressor noise generally. Um, and you know, the local authorities where these heat pumps are located will, will always have their own requirements of, uh, of what that noise output generated from those heat pumps needs to be um, at the closest noise sensitive receptor. I actually spent the early part of my career as an acoustician so I did many noise assessments on chillers, heat pumps, VRF systems. So we're able to have those conversations with our customers. But, but generally, local authorities will look to, to ask for between 5 and 10 decibels below the minimum background noise level, uh, uh, approximately one meter from any sort of noise sensitive window, that be a, a bedroom of a, a residential um, or, or other. And that's really to ensure that the introduction of that plant doesn't increase the overall uh, environmental noise. So, you know, some, sometimes you're able to achieve that by no mitigation. You know, if those receptors are far enough away, that the the natural attenuation of, of distance means that you don't increase the background noise level. Uh, but sometimes there is a requirement to mitigate that noise. And, and, and then, you know, you're looking at various different options that can be done using um, screening can put screens in the way between um, plant and noise sensitive receptors and that can often um, bring the noise levels down if that you know, if that doesn't help then uh, attenuation can be added and, th and there's also software programming that you can adapt onto uh, heat pump systems so you know, you, by the use of, of time clocks and low noise settings you can reduce the noise output of heat pumps during different periods of the day so if you know that the the, the load in that building is going to be very low during the nighttime period anyway, then it wouldn't be unreasonable to um, to be able to set a, you know, a, low, a low noise setting, um, which essentially just reduces the, the speed of the fan and the maximum speed output of the fan. Uh, and therefore, you know, generally in, in most ambients, or sort of most low ambients, will reduce the capacity output. But if, you're, you know, if your heat, heat load within the building is low at that period, then it could be an option. Um, other than that, if, you know, if, you, if you're still stuck, there are acoustic enclosure options where you can fully encase heat pump technology and you, you separate the air paths. So you would have your incoming air going through a different path as your uh, exhaust air. Uh, and, and generally what we see there is that you can, you can achieve you know, 20 dB or above um, reduction in noise output and that that would generally get you out of any most sticky situations that you find yourself in thanks Jeff. so so basically you you need to be considering the acoustics at the beginning of your of your project absolutely yeah 100 percent. and and it would generally be a part of that planning process so um you know an acoustician would go out and 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 
measure the local background noise level and be able to advise on you know, the introduction of any plant and what that you know, what that plant needs to be able to achieve at, at, at source to be able to ensure that we're not making a disturbance to any local noise sensitive receptors. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Bill, I'll come back to you in a second, but I just want to uh, turn to Cherry now and just ask the same question about um, yeah, what, what have been the, the challenges with uh, the heat pump projects you, you've been working on? Yeah, I mean, very agreeing on, on what Mark was saying earlier on um, is, is getting the uh, understanding from a wider perspective. We've done a school recently where we pl replacing the heating system so um but it's a bit more challenging for refurb jobs to install what um any kind of heat pump system for heating it's due to mainly the budget and external plant space allowance so um if it is too close to the classroom it might have the acoustic issue that james was talking about um if it is needing to go onto the roof it might have a planning requirement etc so what we did was basically did all the new piping sizing and all the radiator size based on like a low lower temperature range which helped to future proofing the possibility of installing um, air sourcing pump in the future i think that the challenges on, on a lot of reverb jobs is is different and something that is very common is is the budget the external plant space acoustic that has been commented before and, and in terms of the cost so that so that school so they haven't gone for air source heat pumps immediately but you've kind of future proofed the, the school was that due, due to costs um it's costs and the program issues because um the location of the air source heat pump is most likely require planning application to do it so um it's it's a trade-off in in a way as to as to how the school wanted to do it and and the existing system wasn't wasn't really capable to to survive another year or so and um, so that's that's the kind of intermediate step that we have been put in place for the future um, so, what, so what's the energy source that you've you've got in place until heat pumps can be installed um it's just a gas fire boiler it's like so, a very traditional system so you still. so you bought in a new one to replace the one that only had a year yeah lifespan but with a view to going to air source heat pumps yeah and all, all the radiator is much bigger than the existing radiator because of the lower temperature range that potentially be in in yeah. the air source heat pump so it's interesting you're saying it is possible for a school to consider it but if they haven't got the budget now you can at least if your boiler is about yeah. to be clapped out you could at least yeah. future proof your school um, Bill, um, I was just picking up on that acoustic issue. Thanks very much, James. I mean, I think that uh, Mitsubishi were actually their units are pretty good <laughs> in terms of quiet. Um, but most of the boxes that one tends to select that come from, say, Italy, um, where you are, they're based on commercial chilling systems to go on an office building in the middle of a noisy city, and they're just completely inappropriate for large-scale residential developments because they're just too noisy um and the heat pump industry needs to get over this uh because i i, I think you can always you can always provide attenuation if the thing is too noisy but that's a much much more expensive thing to do than just oversizing the, the equipment to get the the fan um power and fan noise down 
You can always acoustically enclose the, the box with the compressors in it and all that sort of stuff. They can be made quiet, but the, the moving of the air is something that is um, really should be manufactured into um, the unit so they're sufficiently quiet to, to go more or less any way we, we would want to without the need for additional acoustic enclosures. Um, and this has been a real driver for us at, at Wolfson. Um, and, and that's why we've we've actually gone to a special um, where they where you can select a, a, a big enough evaporator to give us the, the noise requirements that we need. But that is not generally available. And I think the industry as a whole needs to needs to think about that because the acoustics, the air movement, um, the cold drafts and all those sorts of things are are the things that we as the engineers who are proposing this have to come up with and the industry isn't supporting us um well enough i would say <laughs> thanks bill i was going to come back to you about the co2 uh, system at wolfson uh, shortly but i thought it might be quite useful i was reading one of tim's older cpds on um co2 heat pumps and i thought i'd i talk to the source um, and so tim did a really nice explanation um gave me a nice explanation which i thought would be worth kind of recounting here so Tim, could you give us sort of an overview of the difference between a, a CO2 heat pump and heat pumps with other refrigerants? The, the big difference with, with CO2 as opposed to a, a normal refrigerants we'd use in a vapour compression system is that in a transcritical system, we raise the pressure of a, of a CO2 above its critical point, which um, <clears throat> practically means that to... Uh, in place of what be the normal condenser part of a refrigeration cycle where we reject heat or we use a heat for our heat pump purposes, uh, we have a, a, a cooler. Uh, and, and what that does, it takes the output from a compressor, which is a high pressure, high temperature gas, uh, CO2 gas, uh, and it simply cools it sensibly. There's no, unlike a normal refrigeration process where you'd have some latent cooling going on in that uh, process, it changes its temperature. So it reject it, the, the uh, gas leaves the compressor at high temperature. It's then cooled down. Uh, what refrigerant en refrigeration engineers call a, a glide, I believe, uh, where we uh, where we change from uh, a high temperature gas to a low temperature gas. Um, and that has some great advantages actually in building service engineering because if we if we use that, that high temperature gas as it comes out of a com compressor, we can perhaps use it to heat out up our hot water. Uh, you know, make sure it's Legionella safe you know, above sixty degrees C. And when we can put the gas slightly cooler gas in through another heat exchanger and maybe use it for our underfloor heating or some other heating load. So. Uh, the rest of the rest of the process, though, is, is pretty similar. Some of the terminology is different, but the very basic uh, CO2 cycle is actually very, very similar to a vapor compression cycle. There's some more bells and whistles to make it work a bit more efficiently than it would otherwise do. But, you know, it really doesn't change that much. The big difference is it's running at high, high pressure. When I say high pressure, it's running at pressure. When it comes out of that compressor, it's probably running at pressure. If you were to wash your car with a, a, one of those high pressure sprays from a, a local B&Q or whatever, that sort of pressure 
you know, you're looking at about uh, uh, 100 bar, the sort of stuff that comes out of one of those uh, high pressure hoses. So it's not beyond the realms of our experience, but it's certainly not something we want to suddenly uh, release that pressure from a system. So the systems mm -hmm. have to be built robustly to, to cope that pressure. Thanks, Tim. And, and Mitsubishi Electric have got a, a CO2 heat pump. And I, before I go back to Bill and ask about his experience, James, are you are you seeing a demand for, for that product in the in the UK, or is it something you're preparing for when perhaps we're inevitably asked to use a lower GWP um, refrigerants? Yeah, so I, th I think there's a there's a couple of drivers towards CO2 in heat pumps. The the first would be that you know. It, if we, if we look at heat pumps generally, heat pumps have always been very efficient at supplying low temperature hot water for heating purposes. But when you try to get um, a heat pump to push towards that high, you know, the higher temperature range for sanitary hot water use, especially to you know, to get up to try uh, to get to 60, 65 degrees, so we can we can deal with you know Legionella cycle without the use of any um, booster heaters or anything like that. Um, that's when your your efficiencies really start to reduce. And so the ability to be able to use CO2 as a refrigerant within heat pumps then opens up the opportunity for us to be able to get much higher efficiencies at those higher temperatures. Um, you know, Tim described the, 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 the mechanics of how CO2 systems work, they're, they're transcritical and um, and they rely on a, on a low temperature coming back to be able to uh, maintain capacity and also efficiency and and the difference really is um, very similar sized capacity heat pumps using uh, if we look at a, a product using a 407c or 410a r32 you could be looking at a cop of about 1.7 1.8 to try and get you know 60 degrees if you looked at a, a co2 heat pump product you could be looking at a seasonal efficiency of, depending on where you are in the country, anywhere from 3.2 to 3.5, delivering um, water at 65 degrees. So it also opens up different opportunities for heat pumps to be able to support industry, high temperature process industry. And then obviously the, the, the added benefit of, if we look at the, the FGAS regulation and the drive towards reducing the equivalent CO2 emissions which is, is coming from F gases in the industry. You know, CO2 is GWP of, of one, and it's following that trend towards our, our, you know, our decarbonisation, really, of, of, of refrigerants. Thanks, James. And, and Bill, just on, on the, that's in consideration, obviously, for Wolfson, um, what, what are the costs looking like compared to uh, um, other heat pumps and maybe other refrigerants? Uh, I'm not seeing that much of a that big a difference the, the other constraints of the acoustics and the, the the particular planning and space and all those sorts of things are, are as important as as everything else so i don't think we would have been able to get you know off the shelf units into that building but the cost mm -hmm. of the uh, co2 heat pump was um similar to what we'd normally find for other things like uh, 600 650 pounds a kilowatt um and that's a pretty bespoke unit which goes into a particular space and is is pretty quiet i don't think cost is a constraint 
Thanks, Bill. Um, I just want to go back to the schools, which being flagged up that there there have been schools that have been uh, retrofitted with heat pumps. Do you just want to mention a couple of those, Ben? You've obviously got a very good awareness of what's going on in, in the market in your position. Yeah, I thought it was just worth flagging that to success. I think it, I think we 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 need to be very careful as an industry. You know, we we can talk ourselves down very very quickly if we're not careful. We've got to concentrate, I think, on what the end game looks like here. Uh, so I thought it was worth just highlighting a couple of examples. So the Royal Alexandra and Albert School in um, in Rygate, um, top of Rygate Hill, that's uh, one of the few remaining state boarding schools. That has just basically dumped oil completely, oil and diesel actually completely, uh, in favour of ground and water source. Uh, huge project. I think it's about two and a half to three megawatts in total. So they've been through all this pain, but they had a very enlightened board who could see the future. Of course, displacing oil helped. The non-domestic RHI helped, you know, so lots of good reasons for doing it. Um, but um, uh, similarly, St. George's in Weybridge, you know, that's natural gas. And they have also taken the taken the plunge and they're going to uh, ground source um, to displace natural gas. Um, easier to displace ground uh, natural gas with ground source because of the higher efficiencies, of course, so you do get a better financial outcome. Uh, albeit at a, at a price. So I think that it, there are some really good examples of people doing some very interesting things. And you know, the, the one other sort of extreme example I'd throw in, of course, is Bath Abbey. Basically, a thousand-year-old building being heated with two-thousand-year-old wastewater. Just a stunning example of the use of water source heat pumps. Thanks, Bean. I just want to go back to a point I think um, Bill touched on, and that, that was the kind of electrical infrastructure you know, required in buildings and, and kind of wider infrastructure as well. And I just want to go back to Mark and just ask if that's been an issue in the buildings you've you've been working on. Uh, yes, it has been getting our design right within our sphere of control. So the site boundary, getting the transformers in the right place, etc. The You've got to remember, depending where you are, we do a lot of work around London. So and it's different in different parts of the country, but the infrastructure, so down the street, uh, the sort of the main transformers is uh, massively under pressure anyway so uh, you can't just switch overnight uh, every development that we're looking at is effectively up paying for upgrades to the network so um, I mean it's always the case anyway because um, that's how it goes generally we are um, energy uh, electricity consumption has gone up with uh, sort of IT demands and uh, things like that but it's that was more incremental this is overnight you're going from well the example bill gave was it 400 uh transformer 400 mba to 1.5 yeah i mean bang <laughs> yeah and and the, the reality the reality is there might not be that available so for the best will in the world the best client in the world the best design in the world the answer might still be no and that's it no <laughs> And that's a policy issue. It's a big, big policy issue. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> and Ben, that might be one, one for you. Infrastructure, do we have the capability? There's an interesting report released by the European Heat Pump Association this week, actually, saying, you know, 50 million heat pumps, can we keep the lights on? Uh, answer, yes, of course we can. Just to highlight uh, the work going on in the background here, we're doing a lot of work with the DNOs and Ofgem um to uh bring them kicking and screaming into the modern era and you're quite right i mean mark bill you're absolutely right we are running way behind here we're currently floundering around in the wake of the boat and we need to get into the bow wave and, and get into the clear water in front 
because this issue about getting transformers nearer to the devices, you know, and the the heat pump manufacturers say, well, previously our chillers have been sitting pretty well on top of the transformer. So we haven't had to worry about harmonics and, and, and flicker and all that stuff. Um, this is no longer the case. So there's a lot going on here. And the important thing, I think, from my perspective, is to make sure that the manufacturers, you know, with our help, uh, Ofgem, the DNOs, the ENA are all actually working together to resolve these issues and resolve them as quickly as we possibly can. And, and I'm pleased to say that the will to do so is enormous. Um, and the sums of money that the DNOs are talking of investing under their ED2 business plans that they just published in the last few days is considerable. And, and Bill, so you wanted to come in there. I was just wondering, I mean, this whole thing about moving large amounts of power around the site, you know, not quite an order of magnitude more, but a huge amount. Um, would it, in the past, um, there have been medium voltage compressors around the, for, for big sites. I'm just wondering how, if there's a market for that, that, that we all dust down our HV networks and bring that into the buildings and um, a big enough building could could work at 3.3 kV. Um, I know we went around the NatWest Tower once and that had 3.3 kV chillers in it. And these heat pumps are going to be of that size. Um, is that something the industry would be interested? I'm not talking about domestic ones, you'd understand. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you're talking about megawatt heat pumps, uh, you should really be talking about medium voltage uh, electricity supplies to them, shouldn't you? Uh, I think all these things are coming, Bill. You know, we're, we're, we're you know, starting at the bottom up. Um, Western Power have just made the decision, well, back in November, they made the decision that all their new domestic supplies will be three-phased. Right. So, so they've made decisions already right. to run ahead of this stuff. And in fact, they're also including all their unlooped supplies. So where they're unlooping supplies, those are also resulting in new three-phase connections. So, you know, starting at the bottom end, we are changing up the type of machines in order to improve the power situation and, and increase the flexibility windows. And, uh, and, and you're actually right. We need to carry that on right the way through up to the multi-megawatt systems and look and see what new technologies and new developments we need with everybody in the supply chain, you know, manufacturers right the way through the electricity system in order to get us where we need to be. Because, you know, we there's no escaping the fact that we've got to get to net zero. <laughs> Thanks, Bean. Um, and another another different side of the same coin is in, in bodied energy. Um, and I know SIPSI um, came out with its uh, technical memorandum 65 earlier this year, which I think James and Mitsubishi Electric and, and both um, Elementor uh, were involved in. Um, James, can you tell me what embodied energy means in terms of heat pumps and, and the work you've been doing? So, yeah, we, we Mitsubishi Electric supported um, SIBSI and, and, and Elementor Consulting really to, to be able to supply information in that early stage of developing the, the mem memorandum. Um, and it's been really welcomed, I think, by, by the industry because before TM65, the only real way to be able to demonstrate the embodied carbon of a product was to undertake an environmental product declaration. You know, it's, it's, it's not a simple process. That calculation methodology really looks at, at, at various factors, uh, material extraction, 
the manufacturing process, the transport to site, uh, and as you say, the contribution of the refrigerant. Um, and when we've started to use this methodology to, to start to um, produce and support the market with, with you know, the embodied carbon of, of our products, what we found is that the refrigerant predominantly, uh, it can make up anything from two thirds to a quarter, and most of the time over a half of the whole embodied carbon of a product. So it really puts another decision-making uh, process amongst all of these others that we've been talking about in this podcast as to the type and quantity of refrigerant that is in the products that are selected. And how much um, information did Mitsubishi Electric already have available? Is it something you've had to start researching, working back down supply chains? So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a change in in thinking for our for our factories for sure. But it's it's not one that's just been driven from um, the UK. Uh, other parts of Europe are also becoming very aware and very. Um, uh, they understand the need to be able to demonstrate the, the embodied carbon of, of buildings. Uh, and, and France, for instance, have have now, I think either now or soon to make, I think it might even be January next year, um, embodied carbon a part of the planning process. And um, and, and they they look for a methodology called PEP, um, which which is which is a very similar methodology to TM65, which which results in being able to provide a embodied carbon figure for a, a material or a product. And so what, what that's involved for us is, um, like you say, looking, looking at the products that we produce, um, breaking them down into the component parts. You know, how much aluminium do we have? How much um, of different types of plastic do we have? How much copper? How much refrigerant? You know, where are those materials coming from? How do we assemble them? Where do we assemble them? How do we transport them to site? Uh, how do we transport them you know, fr from our factories to our warehousing? And and you know that a, a large amount of work to do, but it's 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 needed to be done to be able to support this transition, um, because you know operational carbon, as we electrify heat, is going to become a, a smaller proportion of the overall li whole life carbon, and it definitely is the time. Uh, now to introduce embodied carbon as a as a as a real you know, metric that needs to be considered when you know, looking at this whole push towards net zero. And Terry, I know, I know Elementor are involved involved in this report. Is this something that your clients are more aware of now, or you're making your clients aware of? Yeah, I mean, as as you briefly mentioned, um, my colleagues at Elementa have been working with SIPSI on a research paper, basically gathering a lot of actual data from manufacturer like Mitsubishi, as James just mentioned, um, using the TM65 methodology to draw some very interesting conclusions on all the building services equipment. So that's that's coming out in the end of this summer, I believe. Um, We've been we have been kind of doing presentation to quite a few clients regarding to this embodied carbon energy, um, the importance to actually not just forget about this area of 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 the equations in a way, um, because that's also contributing to whether we can get to net zero, um, ultimately at the end. Um, so 
something something definitely um, in Elementor is pushing quite hard on on actually looking all the data, understanding um, the implication um, of using the SRC pump or any type of heat pump mm. systems. Uh, thank you. And there was there was one other area which we haven't touched on yet, and that's the kind of the the crossover between uh, heat pumps um, and and chillers and VRF systems and the way that heat pumps could end up being specified in, in those areas. And James, you, you have a range of products. Yeah, so we, we, we've got a, a various range of heat pump chillers um, and also uh, four, four pipe um, simultaneous heating and, and cooling chillers. And, and you know the selection of either type of that technology will, will always depend on the building, the profiles um, and how the end users want to be able to, to, to use that product. But um, now there's, there's huge benefits here really in um, being able to bring those two technologies into one. You know, there's the, there's the space saving aspect. We talk, we've talked a lot about uh, in this podcast about space saving. If, you, if you've got a cooling system and, that, and then also a heating system, you, you could be possibly taking up um, double the amount of, of space. So to be able to bring those into, into one is, is always a benefit. And, you know, if those are both noise generating pieces of equipment, you, you may possibly be able to reduce the noise also. Um, and then you get also the, the benefit of, um, of of heat recovery. Um, many of the heat pump chiller products that we offer have the ability to be able to recover heat from the cooling process. And, and, and that can be either just de-superheaters or it could be full full um, heat recovery. So you can recover anything from 20 to 100% of the capacity of uh, that product back into the heating circuit. But then, and then you know, equally, if you look at the our, our four pipe product offer, um, that, that technology is able to simultaneously supply heating and cooling and again works in a Know, on, on a heat recovery basis um, or with heat recovery. So you know, the, there, there's also the efficiency saving there as well and the ability to, to increase the, the overall efficiency performance of, of that technology. So you know, we, we, are, we are seeing uh, and we, we, we expect to see with this transition to the electrification of heat also potentially a, a, a different mix of strategy to be able to deliver heating and cooling to, to buildings. And Mark, are you seeing these types of applications? There is uh, some going on, and not just commercial, I was going to say the ambient loop type approach, uh, where you're using the heat pumps to both heat and cool, and you maintain the network at sort of 2025, and then top up either extracting heat or cooling as required at sort of mini substations. So we're seeing that, that approach on... Um, mixed use resi lead um on the commercial side so some of the office buildings that are all electric uh it's still on the more traditional um i think there's a little bit of wariness of using sort of the cooling side so so you end up with your your more traditional chilled water circuits and cooling towers and chillers in the basement and then the the heating side of things is um uh, air source heat pump driven thank you mark tim i was going to ask you whether you thought we had the necessary skill sets to roll out heat pumps on the scale that is deemed to be necessary? Yeah, I mean that is a, that's a, that's an issue, of course. I mean we we saw what happened with the uh, the initial rollout of heat pumps into into homes, 
and it was a bit disastrous because no one could, <laughs> no one could maintain the things or knew how to run them. The concern is certainly in the initial rollout. Will it, have we got the skill set to make sure that we see the best of these uh, these products going into into the uh, into commercial and and domestic applications? So it doesn't it doesn't put people off the use of uh, heat pumps in their in their buildings. Well, how do you think we can avoid it this time around? Those issues. Well, I I think we need to engage with the skill sets that are already out there in slightly different industries. The retail sector, the food sector, is stuffed full of refrigeration engineers who know their stuff backwards. The HVAC industry is not is seems to live in a parallel universe. Well, I, you know, <laughs> we need to bring those things together. Because, um, you know, when a supermarket goes down, you know, heads roll. Um, they they will make it work. Whereas, you know, if a heat pump stops working in a building, <laughs> just another complaint. Um, so I think there's, there's a real management issue there of pulling those skill sets together. And I can tell you the people I'm working with on, on that, they, they get... <laughs> The profit margins working for Tesco are much, much lower than they are working in the building industry. Um, they would love to get involved. How do we facilitate this? Um, because at the moment, it's the, the heat pump industry for heating seems like a cottage industry, which is absolutely the worst place to start a big rollout, as Tim was saying. Uh, to, to get a plumber to install a, a domestic heat pump anywhere in, in, is difficult um when there's so much money to be made repairing gas boilers and somehow we need to get that sorted out i'm sure the people are there they just need to be redirected i i think and james what what can you do as a manufacturer what, what are you doing uh so on the on our residential side uh mr bishop actually there's been a there's been a very i guess um collective effort between manufacturers to um, provide uh, training sessions and, and upskilling for the existing uh, installer base that, that are that are you know primarily focused within you know, the, the boiler um, industry at the moment for, for residential properties, and you know and that, and that continues to to to, to happen. We, we've just rolled out a online uh, learning service, learning product um, where an installer can can come on and um, learn all about heat pumps in, a, in an interactive engaging um, forum with a, you know, with a live um, instructor who's, who's talking through all of the technologies and then there are some practical parts of that as well so you know that there is a model already there to upskill in, in the installer base that we've that we've adopted as an industry i think fortunately in in the commercial industry it, it, we have been installing and maintaining you know, heat pumps in the market for many years you know let's not forget chillers chillers are heat pumps that just just work in in a, in a different way so you know there is a there's a very big service and maintenance industry already embedded into into the commercial industry and i think you know if we if we can maybe enhance that understanding of heat pumps for, for heating um, by, by maybe deepening the understanding of, 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 of more of the operatives within that industry then you know, I, I, th I think that's that's something that you know 
we are we're we're able to to support moving forward. And Tim, you've been training and educating people your whole life. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think this is something bigger than Mitsubishi or bigger than UCL. I, I, I think this is this is something where I, I guess if we had uh, a triumvirate of uh, of a Beza Institute of Refrigeration and Sibsi getting together and and really looking to to solve this as a as an issue we may we may be able to move it forward because as i think bill says the skill sets are out there and you know talking to some major refrigeration manufacturers they have the skills perhaps not applied in our particular discipline but elsewhere and we need to join together so i think that's something we could all work towards as members of all these institutions try and get these uh working as a, as a as a group and 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 sharing skills and bill that's something you would you would agree with absolutely and but i think the the you, you can't buck the market um that's the problem that um i, I speak to people about you know can you install a heat pump in my house and they think well i'm not really bothered <laughs> you've got to be a an enthusiast to want to put in a, a heat pump um so and um that's a shame uh, and it that that has got to change in the next um few years and i don't know how the government's going to do that but they're going to have to <laughs> so dean it's on your shoulders um no pressure uh, uh, excellent yeah Great. what is happening like to, to change we, to change we like that. the challenge we like the challenge bill um uh i think this is why we need political declaration declarations yeah. you know we need you know, 600, an aspiration for 600,000 heat pumps a year is great, but actually we need something rather more than that. We need people to be, we need political leadership that tells us that decarbonisation is coming and for the next 10 years that means electrification. Uh, and yeah, similarly, it's our job in the industry to also reassure the consumer that this isn't new. You know, when I when I'm speaking to community groups, you know, the first question is, you know, hands up in a room well, when we used to be in rooms, of course, hands up, you know, amongst a hundred people who's got a who's got a heat pump and you might get one or two. And of course, you say, well, that's actually be, I'm afraid you're all wrong because you've all got lots of heat pumps. You know, you've all got fridges, freezers, air conditioning in your cars. You've probably got heat pump tumble dryers these days. You know, the world is full of heat pumps. We just never called them heat pumps. So this isn't scary new technology. We just need to get people used to doing things with the technologies they've already got in a different way, which plays exactly to what Bill and Tim were saying about retraining the existing workforce. That's all we're going to do. We don't need a new workforce. We need to retrain the one we've got. And so the work we're doing with SIBSI uh, on the, the new technical memorandum on multiple occupancy buildings, the work we're hoping to do once government sort the funding out for the rewrite of TM51, um uh, on commercial heat pumps you know all that sort of work and, and that's being done with people like bizria and what have you so we're trying to pull organizations together here um all of that is making a uh, is starting to make a difference but we need to drive the politicians into making more of a statement because at the moment they're not doing enough to encourage everybody domestic and commercial users um, to look at the uh, look at the opportunities around the electrification. Thanks very much, Ben. Uh, I will put some links at the um, underneath the the podcast, so you can click on all these latest technical memorandums um, and and the guides that are out there. So I think that draws a, a close to our podcast today. I'd like to thank everybody for their contributions. 
it's a fascinating area and we're going to hear a lot more about heat pumps in the months and years to come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.